All right, all right, all right. That's the foghorn. That means it is time for the Cavaliers podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and doggone it, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, Chris and I are just back from a visit to some of the key shipyards on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And what we saw was truly eye-opening. No one we visited is standing pat. All are investing in significant upgrades. We'll talk about the trip in detail with our traveling partner, Sam Legrone of USNI News. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The high level of Chinese military activity around Taiwan, which has been continuing for some weeks, seems to be declining after hitting a high just before, during, and after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan on August 3rd. The demonstrations included dozens of warships and many aircraft violations of Taiwan's air and sea identification zones, Taiwan officials said, as well as the launch of at least 11 ballistic missiles into waters near the island nation. The period featured a number of ship-to-ship and plane-to-plane close encounters between Chinese and Taiwanese ships and aircraft. Meanwhile, the USS Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group and USS Tripoli Assault Ship continue to operate at sea in the Western Pacific. In the Atlantic, the USS George H.W. Bush Carrier Strike Group deployed from the U.S. East Coast this past week. Carrier Air Wing 7 is aboard the Bush, who left Norfolk on August 10th. Cruiser Lady Gulf is with the Bush, along with destroyers Nitza, Farragut, Truxton, and Delbert D. Black, the latter ship making her first deployment. Bush is expected to relieve the carrier Harry S. Truman, now on station in the Mediterranean Sea. The USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group returned to its bases on the U.S. West Coast this week, with the carrier tying up at Naval Air Station North Island in San Diego August 11th, after an eight-month deployment with Carrier Air Wing 9 embarked. Abe and the rest of the strike group concluded the cruise by taking part in RIMPAC exercises near Hawaii from late June to early August. The cruiser Mobile Bay and destroyers Fitzgerald, Gridley, Sampson, and Spruance rounded out the Lincoln strike group. The U.S. Coast Guard medium-endurance cutter Mohawk arrived at Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire, August 12th for a port visit. The Portsmouth, Virginia-based cutter is on a U.S. Naval Forces Africa deployment that began in June. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. Okay. Well, as we said, we are just back from a really, really interesting shipyard visit down on the Gulf of Mexico coast. Uh, We were joined by our friend Sam Legrone from USNI News. And uh, Chris and I were both there. Sam is with us today to, to talk about what we saw. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yes. And uh, so we were all down there. Uh, Sam, you and I actually started off in Panama City. Um, we didn't visit, sadly, but we did get a, get a look at Eastern Shipbuilding, where they're building the first offshore patrol cutter. We, we spent some time at the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Panama City. But we, the, the big highlights were um, in Mobile, Alabama, uh, a day visiting Austin, USA. Chris was there as well. And the next day we were at um, Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula. So, Sam, let's go to you. Um, and, of course, Sam and I actually uh, spent spent time um, the last day out at Halter Marine, which is also in Pascagoula, where they're preparing to build the new polar security gutter for the Coast Guard. So, Sam, after, after a blitz of four days of ships in your face, ships in your ears, 
what were your impressions as you came back? First of all, I thought the mix of shipyards that we went to was pretty great um, because, you know, you had it uh, uh, to, to Goldilocks. Uh, you had a Papa Bear yard, you had a Mama Bear yard, and you had a, you had a Baby Bear yard um, all gearing up, getting ready to go, spending a lot of money on um, capital uh, uh, improvements to how they build ships. And what I thought was really interesting was even with the kind of the tentative outlook from the Navy on what their shipbuilding plan is going to look like, you know, I, I point back to the long range shipbuilding plan where you have three different types of uh, ships or it's three different types of long range plans that the Navy's pursuing right now. Uh, and, and it's, it's, really difficult to to understand what the demand is going to be in the out years. I saw three yards that were ready to build. Uh, they were ready to do final assembly. They were ready to take on work. Um, I, I saw yards that uh, in addition to new construction, uh, particularly in um, respect to Austell and Ingalls, uh, also kind of looking to expand on ship construction. And um, I saw uh, yards that were really modernizing and, and thinking about how to absolutely get the, the highest level of efficiency out of their production. So I, I, I mean, you know, not to, for fear of going into boosterism, I saw three yards that were ready to work. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was, you know, you saw every yard. Uh, I mean, Austell was exceptionally impressive. I mean, they've done a lot of acquisition, uh, they have a lot of land now they're, where they're still not sure how they're going to build it, what, what they're going to build on it, but they're ready to expand. Um, Ingalls, of course, has uh, cleared off their their old uh, East Bank, which is actually the original East, uh, Ingalls Yard. And both of those shipyards are also talking about getting into the ship repair business. So when people talk about you know capacity, that's also part of that calculation. And they're both looking at that. Chris, uh, what did you think about this? Yeah, I'll piggyback on what both of you uh, said. I mean, I, I saw a lot of I saw a lot of capacity uh, at those yards. I saw a lot of willingness to take on more work, new work, uh, work that they don't typically do. Um, we heard from Rusty Murdoch last week, uh, who, who talked about that. You know, building elevators for um, aircraft carriers, um, for you know, doing other work that is not just building ships or repairing ships. So components um, for submarines, right? It, it, exactly. Awesome. Um, so, I, you know, I, I was struck not only by the, you know, the CapEx that, that we saw at, um, uh, at Austell and also at, uh, at Ingalls, but I, I was struck by, you know, balancing that with the comments out of the CNO's um, NAV plan, plan, where he talked about, you know, worrying about capacity. And, and I, I, so I, I would love to hear more from the Navy after visiting these shipyards and understand when they talk about capacity, what, what do they mean? You know, do they mean short-term capacity? Are they talking about long-term capacity? What, what, because I mean, we, I think we all walked away feeling like they had the capacity and the, and the willingness to, uh, to, to build more. Um, we certainly heard from everybody at, at all the yards that, um, 
They would love to see more of a commitment in terms of stability and consistency of message from the Navy when it comes to, you know, the numbers of ships and the types of ships that would really help them, you know, expand even further, whether that's more CapEx, whether it's bringing more people aboard. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a great visit and, you know, I now have a much better sense of what, what's happening down there. Um, and, and, you, you know, I had been to Marinette earlier in the year and, you know, the, the same types of trends really are happening at, at, at all these yards in the Gulf and end up at Marinette. Right. Um, let's sort of talk, talk about the yards one by one for just a, just a little bit here. So the biggest yard obviously was Ingalls. We all, we were all there. We all spent a day. Um, uh, the leadership of the yard, Carrie Wilkinson, spent uh, was with us on virtually the entire time. Um, we walked three ships. We walked the uh, new amphibious ship, Bougainville. We walked um, Richard M. McCool, which is the latest uh, amphibious transport dock, and we uh, we walked uh, John uh, Lucas, Jack Lucas, DDG one twenty five, which is the first Flight Three destroyer fitted with the new Spy Six radars that will go with Lockheed's Aegis mm -hmm. system. Uh, this is a big deal. Uh, it, it is a first. It really is a first of class. It's a it's a greatly modified version of the Flight Two A destroyers that have been in, and are still in production, both at Ingalls and up at Bath um, General Dynamics Bath in um, in Maine. But um, did you? I mean, it was it was a brief trip to to the to the Lucas. I mean, all of us I think would like to have seen a lot more, um, but you can only do so much and then so much time. Um, we did. We did. We walked walked ship topside. We walked in uh, uh, in interior for a while, and we all walked through the new uh, combat information center, the CIC. Uh, Sam, what were some of your impressions of of that ship walking through? It's um, it's subtle, but it's it's uh, you can tell that it, it's a tight ship. Um, I, I think the Flight Two A was already a tight design going into. Um, the Navy's decision to put the AMDR radar on there. Um, we didn't get, like you said, we didn't get to see the machinery spaces. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to check out. So if you think about all of the accommodation that the Navy had to do and Ingalls had to do and Raytheon had to do as the manufacturer of the radar and Lockheed Martin had to do as the manufacturer of the combat system. And then, you know, General Dynamics Bath Ironwork is the lead Burke yard to go and squeeze all this stuff in there. Um, it, it felt tight and that CIC felt tight. It was big. It was very big. It very kind big. of felt, I, I, uh, I've been telling people this week, it felt like going to an Alamo draft house with a really low ceiling. Um, <laughs> you know, true. so you have these, like, you have these tiered, uh, stations where, you know, your OSs and whatnot are, uh, are there on, on these levels in front of this big screen, uh, and then, you know, you heard about like the, the big emphasis was for almost the last decade. Well, not the last. Yeah, about the last decade. When you talk about um, flight three and accommodations for the air defense commander, because, you know, a big part of the ship is it's going to be a, a cruiser replacement. Right. Uh, and you're going to have at least uh, for a while, at least for a while. And so it's a O6 or it's a it's a it's a it's a captain's billet. You're going to have a Navy captain who's in charge who doubles as the, the air defense commander for the strike group. And so it was just like, oh, what do these accommodations look like? What does it look like in the CIC? And it's like two terminals <laughs> in the back. I was like, oh, this this was it. This is uh, so so it was it was wild seeing all of these changes that were 
to be made, but it's a, it's a big ship. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's about an, an extra 10 feet um, across the stern. I mean, it's a lot wider right. and, and, it, and it feels, it feels tight, but there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Again, I didn't see the machinery spaces, which I really, really wanted to see. I definitely remember my first time in the engine room of a flight 2A, uh, you know, looking at the shaft coming off the main reduction, you're going like, there's not really a lot of room around that, is there? <laughs> so I really, really wanted to see what it would have been like in the engineering space. Actually, I think the the the, the AMRs, the, the auxiliary machinery rooms, where the where the generators are for to um, to generate the the greatly additional electrical power that these ships require, and it, you know it is it's a cascading effect. These are it's it's a much more powerful radar. It needs a lot more electricity. A lot more electricity in turn uh, begets a lot more heat. Um, you need a lot more air conditioning to deal with that heat. I mean, this is basic engineering, but but you don't just make these changes and make these installs. And there's, there's a cascading effect. And the reason the stern is wider is because there was so much increased material inside the ship, the, the, the existing design, that the, the, the stern sat too low. So they had to widen it out to get that buoyancy back. Um, Chris, you've been on an awful lot of ships. Um what what do you think of the Lucas? Well, I mean, HII and, and the folks that were nice enough to give us a tour, I mean, they did point out, um, and I think this is important. I mean, they, you know, this, they didn't make a jump and, and maybe a lot of people don't realize this. They didn't go from, you know, you know, the classic design to this flight three design in one ship, right? A lot of these changes were spread over a number of ships to be able to kind of you know, crescendo, if you will, to the flight three. Um, so I, I, I mean, that, that was important. So I had seen some of the changes uh, before uh, Sam is right. I mean, when, when he says tight, I, I mean, they have really crammed in stuff everywhere, at least that, you know, that we were able to walk around. I mean, there's a, a you know, DDGs have tons of cables anyway, but I mean, it just kind of felt like there was even more cabling, uh, you know, in the overhead and, and, and in spaces. Um, combat, yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there was a lot going on in, in combat. I'd, I'd love to be able to go back and see once they're even done with the install. And, and if we ever got the opportunity, I'd love to see how everybody fits in there when there's people, right, you, you right know, now. and how, how the choreography uh, goes. The bridge, at least to me, looked about the same. I mean, there wasn't, you know, much different from uh, the newer variants of DDGs that I, I had been on recently. Um, but I mean, they, you know, they're, they're excited to see how all this stuff comes together. Um, they kind of took a little bit of a risk by kind of saying that they would do it. And, you, you know, by, by being the prime, um, and by being the choreographer of, of, of all this change. So, um, I think the next year to two years will be, um, exciting as we see how all this stuff comes together and what works and what inevitably doesn't work. Cause there's going to be stuff that doesn't work. Right. And that they have to troubleshoot. Um, but I mean, they, they seem very well poised uh, to, to deal with those uh, challenges and opportunities. Now, so just yes. to add, Oh, sorry. Just to add one more point, I, I'm going to be really curious to see the decision space on flight three and how that relates to DDGX. Um, moving forward because you know there's a proposal you know and it's probably going to pass for another 15 ship multi-year deal um in the legislation coming up uh for for, for the navy funding and i want to know how long they're going to build the, the the flight threes before going on to the ddg x's because you're going at some point here because you're blowing all your margins you had to get waivers for all of your margins for 
center of gravity, space, weight, cooling, and the rest of it for growth of the ship, because it can't grow that much more. Um, do you go and do you add a plug in the middle of them for like, you know, the flight three A's, which technically, I guess this should really be called flight four, uh, because two A was really flight three, not to get Right. To, not to, not right. to get too in the weeds no, you're, on, you're right. yeah. <laughs> on designations here, but but how much toleration is the Navy going to have for a, a brand new surface combatant that can't grow all that much before they shift over to the DDGX? So that's the one thing I'm going to look at and how they're going to perform in the fleet, uh, you know, in this cruiser role. And that's that's sort of the, the two big things that are going to be in the back of my mind is how much toleration is the Navy going to have? Uh, for a ship with such low margins for growth in the future and then you know how are they going to fit in with the rest of the construct of the carrier strike well, yeah. well of course they i mean they there there is no more margin on the on this design and this this is sort of how things go um ships these days and in the modern era take a very long time to design um they're just incredibly complex and once you get that design and you want to you want to prove it out. You want to build on it, and that's what they've been doing. the The, the Burke, basic Burke design is from the 1980s, uh, similar to the, uh, the, the the Los Angeles class submarines, the 688s. Um, they were continually improved and continually improved and enlarged. And at some point, I can't do anything more with this design. I'm crammed. I need need new hull. That's what the Virginia class is. So now the Navy wants to move to DGX is the next surface combatant, large surface combatant. But um, you're right. It, it, all, all this remains to be seen. And I think that, I mean, this is, this is, this is the big opportunity area at the moment for Ingalls is that uh, number one, they want, they would like to build, be the, at least be the second yard for the frigate. Um, officially there is no second yard at the moment. I think Congress will have a lot to say about that and there will all of us think that there will be a second yard for frigate, which is being built at Fincantieri Marinette Marine up in Wisconsin. But um, the volume, the, the volume that the Navy wants is probably going to be, there'll probably be a second yard. Um, having lost out on the offshore patrol cutter, the Coast Guard offshore patrol cutter, which was just awarded June uh, 30th, um, Ingalls needs work. Um, Ms. Wilkinson was pretty explicit about that. We are a high volume, high production yard, and they absolutely are. They're the they're the most complex shipyard outside in the world outside of China. Um, they just build 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 more sh kinds of ships in that yard than anywhere else. Um, right now, they're building the, obviously the the, the the assault ships, uh, amphibious uh, landing transport docks. They are coming to the end of the national security cutter program for the Coast Guard. They are pumping out. Flight 2A and Flight 3 DDGs for the Navy. They also have in hand, by the way, the 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 uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, the last of the three Zumwalts, is sitting sitting pierside, um, having been moved from Bath Ironworks earlier this year. They are probably going to get the uh, contract to complete that ship um, pretty soon, uh, some within the next month or five. Um, so they, they right now they really have five programs in the yard, six if you want to split the DDGs. Um, but they want more work. They need more work. If the Navy stops building amphibious ships uh, for the time being, that's a major loss from them. And um, they're, this was part of the thing about capacity is that, is that the repair yards. So what was interesting about our visit down there was we know that Ingalls had, had, has, has reconditioned the, the, the old East Bank, the original yard from 1938, actually, which they really haven't used much since the um, early 90s. And uh, 
they're ready to put that into operation. The question is, as what? As a fitting out facility, um, as a repair yard. So they are they are positioning themselves to go after repair contracts and bring bring major repair work back to the Gulf Coast. Interestingly enough, Austell is doing that as well. So they have a new floating dry dock they bought. Um, it's theirs now. The yard they've always had to leave, had to um, you know rent somebody else's floating dry dock. That's how they launched their ships. Um, now they have their own. They control it. They bought a bought a lot of land on um, on the west bank of the Mobile River. Um, across from their existing shipyard. That's a, that's the old Bender shipyard. Um, what do you do with all that? They're already starting repair work um, in that dry dock. Actually, a, a large Army Corps of Engineers dredge was in there when we were there. Um, they could use that for repair work. And on the West Coast, they are opening a, um, a new yard in San Diego that will do nothing but repair work designed to handle both LCSs, littoral combat ships, and the new frigates. So all these yards are are looking for work everywhere they can find it, I think. But, you know, there's also this auto autonomous side that we saw some of. Um, we did not have the opportunity to tour the ship because it was out on trials, but the latest uh, expeditionary fast transport, the Apalachicola, the EPF-13, uh, has been fitted for autonomous operation and they are doing they just did uh i think they were back from their fifth fourth or the fifth series of trials the ship was actually off the, um off the florida keys uh the south the, the south of um florida um in high traffic areas that 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 i believe that is the most that, that is the largest ship in the u.s fitted for autonomous operation much larger than this ghost fleet stuff and the nomad and the sea hunter and, and all those things not a lot of publicity uh it's 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 an open question as to how much the navy will will use that or do anything with it once the ship is delivered but ingles is big into that did you hear a lot about that chris when you were down there I, I did. I mean, um, I that was probably the the biggest um, thing that I picked up and learned uh, in in talking to both uh, Austell and uh, the folks at Ingalls. Um, and and I walked away feeling much better about where we were um, from a um, autonomy standpoint. There's a lot of work going on. You mentioned the large platform. Um, they talked about some of the smaller platforms that they're working on when we talked to Austell. Um, and then, um, you, you know, we talked to HII about what they're doing um, as part of their uh, technology group. So, um, I, you know, we, I think, talked several months ago about how we weren't hearing that much on unmanned other than what was being done in Fifth Fleet. So it was nice to hear what industry's doing and the solutions that they are proactively pushing uh, up to the Navy. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear more from the Navy um, connecting some of those dots for us. Sam, how about you? Uh, I, I don't think the Navy wants anybody to ask any questions about autonomy right now. Uh, <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's pretty clear. I, I don't think they're particularly thrilled that Apalachicola is kind of plumb for all this stuff and they're pushing forward with that. I mean, that's definitely a congressional decision uh, based on uh, who whose districts are, uh, are around Mobile uh, as far as the autonomy portion goes. Um, I mean, I think autonomy is going to be, it's, it's not going to be a binary. It's not going to be zero one. It's not like going to be flipping a light switch uh, that, hey, all of a sudden we're autonomous 
and you know you've got like a robot car that can do all those things i mean think about autonomy you know or the way i think about autonomy and how it's going to eventually incorporate itself into the navy is going to be a lot more like uh you know making lane assist to make sure that you stay in your lane or adaptive cruise control to make sure that you don't like run into the back of the car in front of you to, to push the, the automobile metaphor we're still you know even in even in automobiles we're still a long way away from a completely autonomous car uh uh all due respect to the guy i saw uh driving back from annapolis yesterday who had his feet up on the dashboard watching a movie in his tesla ah! uh just taking it taking it taking his life into his hands so i think the experiments in the taking economy, your life in his hands yeah i know right yeah definitely went way over to the left to, to, to get around that guy. But but essentially the, you know, autonomy is going to come incrementally to like have, uh, for example, like a navigation aid uh, uh, on on your bridges of your manned ships. And it's going to result, I think, in less people aboard. But we're going to be far, far away from a, a, a an Apalachicola sized autonomous warship or an, uh, you know, LUSV, even the size of like Ranger or Nomad or the Ghost Fleet ships that are out there. So I think it's all, it's sort of like incremental development. Uh, and you're going to start seeing it like sort of kind of slowly feed its way into the Navy. But I, I still think they're not quite sure what they want to do with it. Do you want to reduce the Navy. manning? Yeah, the Navy, sorry. The Navy is not quite sure what they want to do. Do you want to reduce uh, uh, manning uh, in the Navy? Do you, because you, have a recruitment and retention problem and you're not going to have enough human beings out there. Well, unmanned doesn't necessarily mean you have less people. It just means the pointy end has less people. You still have people back in your maritime operations centers and people that are monitoring like, you know, the lube oil viscosity sensors that it, there's not a person there, but someone has to go and look at it. So, so in terms of autonomy, I think it's, I think it's interesting, but, you know, I, I definitely want to, uh, I, I definitely want to see it baked a little bit more before I, you know, I'm going to say that, hey, this is a thing and it's happening now. So I don't want to, I don't want to leave this discussion without talking about uh, Halter Marine. Um, Chris, you missed that. You went home. You had stuff to do. You're a working dude. Um, but, but Sam and I stopped off uh, at, uh, for a few hours at Halter Marine, which is also in Pascagoula. Um, where they are, they're, they're going to build the new polar security cutter for the Coast Guard. This is a very big ship. It's a very heavy ship. It's a very complex ship. It's a real challenge for this yard. Uh, Halter Marine has been around for a long time. Uh, they actually have built, um, they did, they built a wide range of crap, but they've also been, and in this, in this facility, they have done uh, container ships up to about 760 feet long. But this is going to be by far the heaviest ship that they've ever built and more complex. Sam, uh, what did you think of Halter Marine? I thought the Halter Marine was, was uh, I'd never been there before. And it was, uh, it's a it's a cool little yard kind of tucked back up in, um, up in, up in a bayou. Uh, and I think the thing that kind of stood out uh, for me was the way that they have kind of pivoted away from commercial oil and gas, um, which was a, a big boom. So all of that stuff went away. And so now they're they're kind of tooling up for the, all government all the time. And uh, they've got kind of this really interesting leadership group there of uh, Bob Merchant, who was a longtime uh, Ingalls. Ingalls guy, sorry, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the LPD 17 crew from Ingalls uh, retired yeah. and now they're there. Former um, head of Coast Guard acquisitions is on their uh, on their team now at Halter. So they've quietly yeah. kind Temple of- Ron Robago. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, and they have quietly built this like this, this kind of like all-star team 
over at Halter to go after this work. And um, especially considering uh, the polar security cutter is, is a big, big deal. It's uh, what, 18,000 tons. I think that's what we're, we're, we're kind of coming in at. It's a big boat. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big, big boat. Um, and it's going to, it's going to definitely stretch out the, the size of that yard. Um, I, I think they, you know, I, I can't, I walked away with a lot of, uh, you know, sort of confidence in that, in that leadership team um, going, you know, Hey, yeah, we're, we're going to go and do that. And I think the, you know, you have to level set all that with how long it's been taking the polar security cutter to finish its design uh, component, which they, they talked about a little bit about sort of, you know, kind of what, what those struggles were, but, you know, you couldn't ignore the fact that some of those initial components are there. 75% of the steel for the polar security cutter is there. Right. Um, so, so, you know, good signs if, if, if you're looking for, um, you know, th them to, to start fabrication on that ship. I don't know. I saw, I saw a lot of promise in what was out there. It, it, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, which we don't know what the country is. No one would say what the country is, but there's two uh, LST or tank landing ships there. And, you know, they're going to be competitive if the Navy ever gets uh, together for a light amphibious for warship. Law, right. Um, uh, Every, I, everybody has law projects. Everybody has a law project, but light I, amphibious I, warfare ship. that was one I could see and yep. like, I look at. So, um, so yeah, a lot of interesting things going on in that yard and, you know, all, you know, on top of all of this, everyone's talking about sort of the opportunity for some of these, you know, for these unmanned ships or these kind of smaller right. vessels or lightly manned ships. And I think Halter is kind of looking at that as well as Austell. All right. Well, you know, we could go on a lot longer for this because we really, we saw a lot. We have a lot of thoughts, but doggone it, we're just out of time. So um, we're going to, we're going to wrap up. Our guest has been uh, Sam Legrone, the editor of USNI News, who was uh, our, our companion throughout our, our, our shipyard visit. Sam, as always, thanks for being on the, on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Now hear this, now hear this. All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And fresh off of our trip to the Gulf Coast, Mr. Cavus talks about the importance of everyone being on the same page. Thanks, Chris. Well, capacity, capacity, capacity. One hears a lot about capacity when discussing the size of the Navy. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday repeatedly cites the lack of industrial capacity as a significant limiting factor in building a larger fleet. Nobody likes the numbers with respect to capacity, he said during one of his recent public appearances, where he often adds that he can't ask for a Navy bigger than can be sustained. Well, that last part is true. But if we saw anything during our Gulf Coast shipyard tour, we saw capacity, especially at the biggest shipyards on the coast, Ingalls Shipbuilding and Austell, USA. Both yards are eager for more business, and both are positioning themselves not just for new construction, but also to take on significantly more ship repair work. We should make clear that neither Ingalls nor Austell made comments to contradict the CNO statements about limited capacity. Neither yard wants to antagonize their primary customer, the U.S. Navy. But we can say it based on what we saw and heard. The capacity is there should the Navy and Congress choose to use it. Talking about capacity in broad strokes is usually misleading. For one thing, every shipyard is unique. While they're engaged in the same business, they all deal with local politics, local workforce issues, local infrastructure, and very importantly, local geography. 
What's true at Austell is not necessarily the case at General Dynamics NASCO in San Diego, or HII's vast Newport News shipyard, or at Fincantieri Marinette Marine in Wisconsin. The same with repair yards. BAE Systems Norfolk is not bigger in Seattle, nor Fincantieri's Marine Repair Yard in Jacksonville, Florida, or Detian's in South Carolina. Some of those yards are jammed with work. Others have facilities working below capacity. There's more, of course, to shipbuilding than just space and facilities to build ships. There are key questions about workforce issues and supply chain problems. But those issues affect just about everybody, not just in the United States, but globally. And again, it depends on what yard and what ship design you're talking about. A key example of the difference between yards is to compare GD's Bath Ironworks yard in Maine and Ingalls in Pascagoula. BIW, home of the Bath Built is Best Built slogan, is working itself out from a mountain of largely self-caused difficulties. And while the yard carried out major facilities improvements in the early 2000s, it is still behind on all its destroyer contracts, notwithstanding the significant delays throughout industry caused by the pandemic. Ingalls is moving in the opposite direction, and it is not unreasonable to assume that the Mississippi shipyard can build twice as many destroyers as its competitor in Maine. Such a situation does not sit well with the Maine and other New England delegations in Congress, who would rather see destroyer contracts awarded between the yards on an equal basis. But sorry, the truth is each yard's current capacity is vastly different. The Navy and Congress can restrict themselves to political restrictions or move more aggressively to exploit current capacity realities. What it really comes down to is do you want to fight China with one hand tied behind your back or not? This is not a case of build it and they will come. It is much more a case of order it, pay for it, and industry will size itself to build it. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Hey.